Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 7 and reading through verse 10. Hear now God's Word. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Before you're seated, uh, I want to ask you to bow your heads and to pray. I'd like you to pray for me as your pastor as I preach today. I have prayed for you this week. And I want you to mostly pray for yourself that God will give you ears and hearts ready to receive his word today. That should be our prayer every time we come before the Lord and sit. But this is a way of perhaps uh, reminding us and helping uh, stir us up to that remembrance that what we're about to do, we're doing together before the Lord. So please bow and pray, and then I'll close here in a second. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are eager to receive your word and feet that are swift to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Maybe see. At the beginning of every new year, it's a good time to pause, to look back, and to assess where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. Our text tells us that we are to not be deceived meaning that it is possible for us to misread ourselves and to misread our current circumstances and to fail to see what we ought to see. When the Bible gives that kind of warning, we should really back up and maybe read that verse again. What is it that I might be deceived about? Specifically, we might fail to see where we're headed if we keep this up. So Paul warns that whatever we sow, we will reap. And that means that what we are doing or not doing today has a trajectory toward the future. Whatever we're doing or not doing always has a trajectory. It's going somewhere. Are we moving up or down? Are we moving forward or backward? We are either sowing seeds to our flesh That is, to our self-interest, or we are sowing seeds to the Spirit. That is, godliness or the glory of God. We're either contributing to a loving communion in our families and in our church and to the broader world, for that matter, or else we are tearing it apart. Those are the two mutually exclusive alternatives. As a church family, as well as our nuclear families, many of us have been at this for at least 20 years or more, and we have found out that it wasn't quite as easy as we had imagined or hoped. We used to be experts, but now we've been to school. I can say with confidence that all of us have felt some disappointments, some failures, and some setbacks. We've gone through trials and suffering and sorrows. And in the midst of this, if we're not careful, we will lose sight of all the joys and the successes and the accomplishments that have been a part of our journey so far. Moreover, it would be really bad to forget our calling. And it would be really tragic if we fail to press on to the finish line, which is everlasting life. As I've recently experienced my own weariness, 
I've thought about each of you, and I've prayed for you over the last couple of weeks by name. And let me just pause and say, I love you. And I've thought about you. And I don't know near enough to know exactly how to always pray for you. But as I looked at this text and I thought about myself and I thought, well, you know what, we're in this together. We are sharing this journey. And again, this, these things are common to us all, the ups, the downs, the weariness. I know that personally and pastorally I have need of having my pot stirred or my fire stoked, rekindled. And I'm pretty certain that many of you do as well. I remember when my enthusiasm for Christ and his church was great. And I knew some of you when you were more zealous for Christ and his church. So my intention today as we look at this text is to, for me to come alongside you and for us together to reflect and project. There's an odd irony in life in that comfortable lives tend to produce, instead of gratitude, they tend to produce apathy. And apathy kills. Nicole shared an Axis newsletter with a session a couple of weeks ago, and one of the items said this. A survey of a 1,000 pastors offers insight into what church ministry may look like in 2022. Many say that they are concerned about finding leaders and volunteers to step up within their congregations. But the number one issue that those surveyed said they were dealing with was apathy and a lack of commitment from church attendees. While every congregation faces different and specific obstacles, it would seem that the last few years have been challenging in terms of getting people passionate about ministry, service, and even church attendance. And we say, um, that's the end of the quote, we say that this is because we're busy. Busy is better than lazy, but busy is no excuse. I was thinking about this this morning. Are we really busier than a pioneer woman who had to haul 200 pounds of water every day just to do her chores? Are we really that busy? Are we any busier than any other generation that had to work from sunup to sundown to put food on the table? Are we really too busy? If you think about our conveniences and our servants and our tools and our air condition and our cars and all of our comforts, are we really too busy for the kingdom of God? You might recall that Jesus, just before his teaching on the cost of discipleship, spoke of this parable of the Great Supper, where he, in effect, says being too busy is not an excuse. Here's what he says in Luke 14. (coughs) Excuse me. A certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servants at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. I was thinking about preparing Sunday school lessons and preparing sermons and lessons on Wednesday nights and all those things. Those are meals being prepared. But they, with all one accord, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. And still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city 
and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Essentially, Jesus said, Go out and find some people who are not too busy to follow me. We might fill in the blanks with different things that we're too busy with, but if Christ and his church are the priorities that he demands, then none of us are too busy to serve. We're all making choices every day regarding which seeds we're going to sow and ultimately which harvest we're going to reap. Jesus says this kind of thing repeatedly. Uh, Mark chapter 8, 34 through 37. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so we have tended to take these serious warnings and say to ourselves, oh, I'm going to heaven. I don't really need to lose anything. I can have all of this in heaven too. I got my ticket punched. But the Bible is full of the hard sayings of Jesus. And I don't think he's being hyperbolic here. Now, While the normal hardships of things like were mentioned in Luke 14, like business situations, labor, marriages, those haven't gone away. We have all those as possible excuses. We are increasingly distracted by our amusements, particularly electronic devices. The newest thing is often the most dangerous thing. And I'm going to give some qualifiers here, so please hear those. Every technology offers temptations in the hands of sinful men. On the good side, much technology is an example of men exercising dominion over the earth. They're tools. They enable us to be more productive, so we do have more time. And more energy. On the other hand, a chainsaw in the hand of an eight-year-old running through the house is no less powerful a piece of technology, but it's a whole lot more destructive. And I would suggest that for many, a smartphone may prove to be even more destructive than a chainsaw. Here are a few quotes from Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which I would highly recommend if you haven't read that. He wrote this before smartphones existed, and so I exchanged his use of the words, the word televisions, for smartphones. Televisions are so yesterday. Here's what he says. The smartphone is the command center of the new epistemology. Epistemology is the study of how we know what we know. It's how we know things, right? We look it up. We Google it. The smartphone is the command center of the new epistemology. There is no audience so young that it is barred from the smartphone. There is no poverty so abject that it must forego a smartphone. There is no education so exalted that it is not modified by a smartphone. Spiritual devastation is more likely to come from an enemy with a smiling face. Tyrants of all varieties have always known about the value of providing the masses with amusements as a means of pacifying discontent, but most of them could not have even hoped for a situation in which the masses would ignore 
that which does not amuse. If you're not entertaining me, I'm not paying attention. If you're not putting on a show, if you're not titillating me in some way, then I'm bored, right? Let's compare our handheld glitter boxes to church. Church is boring. The Bible is boring. Reading good books, boring. And if you doubt what I'm saying, how would you like, maybe we could project it up here on the screen, a chart depicting your average daily screen time with your average daily spiritual pursuits? Moreover, our miraculous technologies, and this is a really key point I want to make today. I'm not just railing against technology. I'm not. I'm for technology when it's used for good purposes. But our miraculous technologies have done something, I believe, especially it's showing up in the last few years because now they've been around long enough for the the harvest, the seeds that we've sown are starting to, we're bearing the fruit of this. Our miraculous technologies have separated us from one another. We are being disassembled little by little. Within our families, within our churches, within our communities, and I do not think I'm overstating this, and I think this is critical. In Otis Huxley's book, A Brave New World, another one you ought to read, he made it clear that it is not just Big Brother who is watching us, but we're watching him voluntarily. There is no need for wardens in prisons or prisons. There is a private tutor in the hand of every man, woman, boy, and girl. Moreover, I truly think the COVID pandemic, along with our entrenched technology, has worked to separate us from one another. And I want to remind you that that's the definition of death, separation. Death is not that I cease to exist. It's that I exist alone. Severed relationship, severed relationship with God. What happened when sin came in? Sin hid your face from God. Adam hid from God. He no longer walked with God. And that's what happens in our families. Sin separates us. And anything that separates us leads to death. Friends, we are not only losing our children. We're losing one another. So we've grown weary of the hard work of sanctification. And we welcome anything that promises us an escape to an easy alternative reality. That's what it's called, right? The only problem with alternative reality is, number one, it's not real. And number two, in the end, it's not easy. And so I want to note that while I don't think we can escape the world of technology that we live in, and technology itself provides some genuine dominion tools Nevertheless, most technologies carry with them the possibility of ethical or unethical use. In other words, the wrong use of a good thing will kill you. And it's clear that we are being separated. That is, we are being killed day after day after day, little by little, death by a thousand cuts. There's a whole lot of electronic sin going on in our families and in our congregation. And if you don't think and if you think that because you don't personally use such technology or you don't use it much that you and your family or our church are immune, then you are badly mistaken. The seeds have been sown throughout the whole world, and there's a harvest of despair that has begun. I underline the next sentence for me and for you. 
The value of our face-to-face communities is eroding, and I'm warning you that it must be reclaimed if we're going to survive this plague. And I'm not just referring to COVID. Ask you a question. Is your family more or less engaged with one another in personal communication, communion, than it was a year or two ago? I think some of you probably could say yes. But I think many of us would have to say no. When was the last time or times you have opened your home to have real people sit at your real dinner table or on your porch and pray and sing and talk? Is church your vital community or has it become a place for you to come and go to do your religious thing so you can get back to your regular distractions? Brothers and sisters, real communion, real community is hard. You're difficult. And I know I'm difficult. The Bible says, and that is our standard, right? That's what you signed up for. That's what I signed up for. And let us consider one another. In other words, when I'm making decisions about what I'm going to do or not do, I'm going to consider you, not just me, not just what I like and what I want and and what's in it for me, but I'm going to ask another question first, what's in it for you? Can I help you? Can I serve you? Through love, we're to serve one another. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting, that is, encouraging one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. First Peter 4, 8 through 10. And above all things, Peter says, put this on the top of your priority list. Above all things, have fervent love for one another. Remember, love isn't just a sentimental feeling. Love is about service. It means you've got to be around people to serve them. You've got to know them to know what they need in order to meet those needs. Have fervent love for one another above all things, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. Serve one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Remember, grace is ill-deserved favor. So he says, God's shown you that. Now you go show it to everybody else. I know they don't deserve it. I know they're hard. They're irritating. They get on your nerves. You don't really like this person. You know, I, Look, I don't like all of you all the time. I don't like me most of the time. But I love you all the time. And if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about, right? Frantisic Miklosko, now in his 70s, was a central leader of the Slovak underground church during the days of communism. He offered advice to the current generation of Christians who, in his view, are facing a very different kind of challenge than he did in his age. He says this, When I talk to young people today, I tell them that they have it harder than we did in one way. It is harder to tell who is the enemy. I tell them that what is crucial is to stay true to yourself, true to your conscience, and also be in community with other like-minded people who share the faith. We are saved by small communities. There is a virtual onslaught against our children 24 hours of every day, and I am not exaggerating. This isn't something that I'm predicting is going to happen. It has been happening for a very long time, and it is only accelerated. Seeds of some sort are being sown every day by you and by me, 
And if we don't wake up now and recommit ourselves to Jesus Christ and his church, it will consume us and our children and, for that matter, our land. Now, it's an age-old problem that when we get a glimpse of our own failures, we want to shift the blame to our neighbors, the school, the church, our spouse, anywhere but ourselves. Well, it is past time for you and me to stop such self-justifying behavior and step up and assume full responsibility not only for our failures in the past, but more importantly for our duties in the future. This is not humiliating. It's liberating. Withdrawing or fading or fainting or, as our text says, losing heart is not an option for a follower of Jesus Christ. Frankly, some of you have grown bitter, sour, and withdrawn. You've crossed your arms and you've given up and it shows And I'm not saying this because I don't love you. I wouldn't be loving you if I didn't say it. I'm saying this because it's true, and if it doesn't change, then the seeds of bitterness will yield a bitter harvest for you and those around you. Because the Bible said so. Pursue peace with all people. Let me say that again. Pursue peace with all people. Some of, some of us need to be pursuing some peace with some people we're not at peace with. And holiness, godliness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, say, oh, I have a great relationship with Jesus, I just don't really want to have anything to do with you. No, it doesn't work that way. We're the body of Christ. And if you want to have anything to do with him, you've got to have something to do with us. looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Stop it. Repent. Get up. Get going. Go and sin no more. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Because faithfulness is a cross-country trip, and so endurance is called for, that is, endurance to the end. And so let me ask you an all-important question. Would you sign up again to be a follower of Jesus? Would you re-enlist? Now, before you say yes, I want to remind you of what he said that looks like. Back to Luke 14, the next section is a key passage where Jesus teaches on the cost of discipleship. So keep the question in your mind. Okay, let's see you get to decide whether you want to keep going, whether you want to re-enlist, sign up, follow Jesus. Here's what he says. <clears throat> now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life, also he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king does not sit down and first uh, consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. And he who, let, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
So if you want to be a follower of Jesus and not just a part of the multitude of curious admirers of Jesus, then Jesus says there are three threshold matters that you must consider before signing up. First, forsaking your self-interest. Self-denial, which is a form of death. German Lutheran pastor and anti-Nazi dissident Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote a famous book entitled The Cost of Discipleship, and I want to draw on a couple of his observations as we answer these questions, or this question, do you want to sign up? He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more of the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, He leads the way. Keep close to him. Second, so first, forsaking your self-interest. Jesus says, that's what it's going to cost you. Second, you're going to have to forsake your relationships. And Jesus is very explicit here. He's unequivocal. You may not put any other relationship ahead of your commitment to him. Not if you want to be his disciple. You don't have to be his disciple. But if you want to be his disciple, he says, that's what you've got to do. You ought to love your children the way God says to love them, and that includes letting them know that your loyalty to Christ and his church will not allow their disloyalty to Christ and his church to ever displace your allegiance to him and his church. Matthew 10, Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And if this is true of your family members, it is even more true regarding your friends. There's an Old Testament passage that is shockingly clear as to this important, or should I say critical, point. (coughs) Excuse me. Your commitment to the Lord has to exceed all other relationships. Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 11. You know, one of the things we've resolved already, right, as followers of of God is we're going to believe his word and we're not embarrassed about any part of it. I can't always explain every part of it, but I'm not ashamed of it. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, in other words, your lover, the one, your your soulmate, your friend, who is as your own soul, we would say your BFF, your best friend forever. If they secretly entice you, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the people which are all around you, near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, you shall not consent to him or listen to him. You you shall not, uh, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. 
So shall all Israel hear and fear and not again do such wicked things among you. Third, forsaking your possessions. Our creature comforts are many and they are to be held as with open hand as gifts and not entitlements. At any point where our possessions are interfering with our following Christ, we walk away from them. It includes our jobs, anything else. Again, Bonhoeffer says, I love this quote, Be not anxious. Earthly possessions dazzle our eyes and delude us into thinking that they can provide security and freedom from anxiety. Yet all the time, they are the very source of our anxiety. 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world, and the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, it's interesting, because I know what I've just said is hard. In fact, I've wrestled with that more than anything this week. I'm not here to beat you up. I'm here to lift you up. But before we get to that part, which is the conclusion of this sermon, sometimes we got to get wounded before we can get healed. On one occasion, after Jesus had spoken to the crowd, we read this in John 6. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, maybe you can relate to this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, listen to this, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So I ask you today, Is there some part of your life which you're refusing to surrender to him? Again, Bonhoeffer commented, so many people come to church with a genuine desire to hear what we have to say, yet they are always going back home with the uncomfortable feeling that we are making it too difficult for them to come to Jesus. He goes on to say, the community of the saints, the church, is not an ideal community consisting of perfect and sinless men and women where there's no need of further repentance. No, it's a community which proves that it's worthy of the gospel of forgiveness by constantly and sincerely proclaiming God's forgiveness. Sanctification means driving out the world from the church as well as separating the church from the world. But the purpose of such discipline is not to establish a community of the perfect, but a community consisting of men who really live under the forgiving mercy of God. So before you have to make the final decision about signing up again, what does Jesus promise his followers? And I know I'm going a bit long today, and I'll make it up to you next week, maybe. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And he who, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The cost of, disciple, the cost of discipleship are high, but the benefits of discipleship are even greater. And if you think life is hard, with Jesus than try doing it without him. He promises the forgiveness of sins, abundant life now, and eternal life forever. Yet those promises are contingent upon faith, and true faith always yields a harvest of obedience. 
So quickly here, the promise of the forgiveness of all our sins, all of them. And since sin is the cause of every single one of our problems, the gospel, the blood of Jesus Christ is the only remedy, the only remedy. That's why he must be our first love. If he's going to be our Lord and our Savior, he's got to be in charge. Do you remember what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2? Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. In a book I recently read by Jay Stringer, he reminded me of this. And I want to remind you of this because I have a hard time remembering this. The Father who waits for us is not ashamed of us. On the contrary, he is a cheerful and indiscriminate host. He offers invitations to everyone, particularly those whom society deems most unclean, unworthy, and perverse. What should make us most uncomfortable about sin is not our failures, but how loose God is with his table invitations. Can we really be loved and desired at the depths of our failures? Sin is an opportunity to be loved abundantly. And again, many of us have a hard time believing this. Listen, your pride is your enemy. It is the mother of all sin. Pride is delusional. It is spiteful and bitter. And at its root, it declares, I don't want God to be God. I want to be God. And if your pride is keeping you from owning all your sins, if it is keeping you from confessing all your sins, then your pride is keeping you from abundant life, and it will wreak havoc in every relationship you have, including your relationship with God. Stop trying to be as God. Our text says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. What relationships in your family or in this church do you need to go repair and humble yourself and seek reconciliation? And I mean deep reconciliation. Romans 12:18. if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Second, he promises abundant life now. And if you're not experiencing abundant life, then you have fallen in a ditch somewhere and you are in desperate need of extrication. That's what I'm trying to do today. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. If you're not consciously, daily, and earnestly looking to your shepherd, your Savior, then it's no wonder you've grown weak and weary. Do you regularly talk to him and listen to him? Listen to this familiar passage and tell me if this is a description of an abundant life, an abundant harvest. You know the passage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ, those who belong to Christ, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. 
You see, there is some kind of fruit, some kind of harvest in your life, and it speaks volumes about the seeds that you have sown and that you are sowing. And third, this is be very brief, he promises eternal life. But he who sows to the Spirit, will of the Spirit, reap everlasting life. Philippians 3. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected. Paul was still a sinner. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. I was thinking maybe we need a baptism booster. And so today I'm asking each of you to re-up. to re-enlist as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, to follow Jesus the rest of your life. Right now, today, will you commit yourself to Jesus and to this broken community of his people? And will you sacrifice yourself as an act of love for him and love for his people? Because we need you and you need us. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve Yahweh. And if it seems evil to you to serve Yahweh, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, You really want the gods they serve? But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Jesus said, come to me, all you who who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Isaiah 40, and we'll close with this, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. From Psalm 51, our prayer, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. And blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Amen. Well, tying in what we've just said with our approach now to the Lord's table, I want to read a section again from Bonhoeffer on the cost of discipleship. He says, cheap grace means grace sold on the market like junk. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury uh, from which the showers uh, blessing, uh, from which she showers blessings with generous hands, without asking questions or fixing limits. 
Grace without price. Grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of the man who will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods, for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Amen. Our Heavenly Father and Savior, keep us as the apple of your eye. Hide us under the shadow of your wings. Keep our souls and deliver us. And let us not be ashamed. For we put our trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve us, for we wait for you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving your sheep eternal life and for the promise that we shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch us out of your hand. Bless now this Lord's day. May we sanctify it unto you, setting aside our own labors and concerns, and may we delight in you and in one another. Bless our food and our conversation And may they both be used for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.